I'm David Cummins, host of the Australian Health Design Council podcast, Health Design on the Go, where we take a deep dive into the world of health design, planning and construction. The Australian Health Design Council was established 10 years ago and has established itself as a global leader in the design and construction of healthcare through research and education. In this, our first podcast series, we take an opportunity to meet the founding members of the HDC, who they are and what drives them to be leaders in this field. Leslie Orway is a clinical health planner working in Australia and Asia. With more than 30 years of clinical experience in the healthcare industry, she has participated in the health and development of a large number of state-of-the-art hospitals and healthcare facilities. Her specialty is in highly clinical areas such as operating suites, CSSD, ICU, the emergency department, and infection control practices. Leslie is a committee member of the Australian Health Design Council, a member of the Australian Infection Control Society, a member of the Sterilisation Research Council of Australia, and a life member of the Australian Day Surgery Nurses Association. Leslie, thank you for your time. Welcome to the AHDC podcast, Health Design on the Move. Thanks, David. Nice to be here. Do you mind just telling listeners a little bit more about your background? We know you've had a clinical background in health planning, but what, what actually was your journey to get here today? My original qualifications were in nursing with specialty areas of operating rooms, infection control, CSSD, and I also did computer studies in the 70s as well. I worked with the development of seatbelt legislation and, and bicycle help legislation with the trauma centre that was at Preston and Northcote Community Hospital. So being involved in that early development of practice to improve clinical outcomes has really driven where I've worked from that particular time. So I suppose a lot of people don't actually know the difference between health planning and clinical health planning. Can you just help describe the difference and exactly what you do and, and what your services actually help and what the benefit they are to a project? I think until recent times, um, architects identified themselves as health planners. Their role was specifically architectural design for health planning. I coined the term clinical health planner to try and indicate the difference in those two roles. They're concurrent roles and they support each other. So a clinical health planner works directly between the client or the user groups and the architectural team to interpret and assist the user's language and understanding um, so that both groups of people are all working off the same songbook because they're coming from very different areas of practice. I think definitely having that clinical background does help enhance the clinical experience and the process of planning and construction for the whole journey. Can you give some examples of the benefits of a clinical health planner on probably a, a more clinical setting such as the CSSD and theatres? So the clinical health planner actually speaks the language of the user and also understands the language of the architect being the facilitator which actually ensures that both groups of people understand what the other group is saying to them is really that really important role and that comes from having a clinical background and understanding what the clinical practice is and also interpreting the functional brief into the master plan so those clinical roles ensure that the information that the rest of the team the architects and me mechanical services and other support groups are going to build what the users are expecting to be built. Yeah, interesting. So how did it evolve from, I suppose, a lack of design and a lack of planning and people being upset with the way hospitals were being built in the 70s? 
Well, what drove me was I didn't want to work in another badly designed hospital. One of the hospitals that I did most of my professional work at was designed in the 50s but wasn't built until the early 60s. So it was obviously already 10 years out of date before they even started the construction. I think that's a problem with all major big projects, that the design phase is lengthy and then we need to allow the transition for the changes in practice to when we actually start the construction. Now, that's usually at least five years. And these days, the technical equipment has a five-year lifespan. So basically, all the technical equipment driving the design is already out of date before the building even starts construction. Having worked in the environment where you're constantly trying to deliver a service that the building didn't accommodate, that's been one of the things of interest to me to try and bring those groups together. Yeah, what an amazing um, evolution of your career to see. We were designed in the 50s, built in the 60s, we're in 2022. So over that journey, what do you think would be some of the best teachings you've had in your career? I think probably what I call the significant equipment list. I keep the top 20 significant equipment items, which we look at at the beginning of a project, not once we've actually done schematic design. So that needs to be part of the initial planning. And I actually sat on the um, committee and helped write the standards um, for Victoria, which were then promulgated into the AHFG standards um, from about 2012. Wow. So that would be some of the, the highlights. What would be some of the challenges? Value management is always a challenge because we go through a process of master planning fun- or functional brief master planning SD, and then we get to value management, we start trying to cut the project into little bits. One of the things that always get lost, the areas, the support areas, and I only have to walk through any major hospital to see the trolleys and equipment in corridors to know in value management what got taken out. It's always poorly assessed and, and it's always the first thing to go and yet it impacts totally on the clinical practice or the ability to deliver the the services. I think the importance of post-occupancy assessment can't be undervalued and I think we need to do it more but there's always a reluctance to do that. I do feel that sometimes people don't necessarily disrespect the health planning component but probably aren't aware of the power of a health planning. I think one of the things I've seen in the last 10 or 15 years that I've worked for large architectural firms and I think it's become very evident to them the benefit of having a clinical health planner. I think you find most of the large architectural firms now have an in-house clinical health planner. I think we did set up a subgroup in the AHDC for clinical health planners. And although that hasn't been working formally, it's been working informally with a group of clinical health planners. My understanding is you've been with AHDC for over well, 10 years. It's our 10-year anniversary now. Um, how important was it to be part of that founding members of the AHDC. What was it like 10 years ago? The AHDC was already formulated when I joined. I was always really impressed with the evidence-based information coming out of there. At that stage, I was president of the Australian Day Surgery Nurses Association, and I also was running a postgraduate course at Deakin University in day surgery, the first one in Australia. I'd spent a lot of time researching going to the US one year and and Europe the the following year. 
to try and inform myself of what's good practice. I joined AHDC to help support that educational role, really, and helping support good evidence-based practice, which is to drive design, not the other way around. When I got involved in doing day surgery in the 80s, there was no existing models in Australia, and the European models were pretty poor. America was certainly a, a strong leader in that area. Unfortunately, their models were driven from a financial point of view. That also meant that they had to develop good models so that their financial outcomes were successful. So there was some really good research that came out of the the US in the early 80s, which helped me drive my involvement in the Australian Day Surgery Nurses Association and also taught me a lesson that you can't make change when you're on the outside of organisations. Yeah, you're 100% right. What do you think is something that we continue to get wrong in health planning and design in Australia? When you look at Australia's health services and standard of health delivery, you know, we're in the top four in the world. There's only three countries in front of Australia for overall health delivery, and the US isn't one of them. So I think that we already do very well. What changes do you think have helped mould the the current design and health planning of um, Australian hospitals at the moment? Well, obviously PPPs is probably the biggest change from design and construct and the money being made available through PPPs means a great deal of projects have got underway that maybe would not have in the past. And I think the other thing we face certainly in Victoria is that there was a lot of uh, infrastructure development in that 50s and 60s, but they're almost immediately out of date. And I think that's a constant challenge. I think one of the biggest challenge is technology, uh, interventional imaging, interventional um, medicine is seeing the change of practice from operating rooms where you're having open surgery, which we just don't do anymore. I think that what we're going to see in the future is far more home medicine. So we're going to see a much higher development of highly technical um, areas, interventional imaging, etc., and we're going to see a, a lower level of service delivered in different sorts of facilities. Some years ago, patients having general anaesthetics are in bed for 10 days, where now they don't have any sort of anaesthetic intervention other than drops, and procedures take 10 minutes, and the patients are gone in half an hour. So I think that sort of dramatic change in clinical practice, unfortunately, it's hard to be gathered when we take five years to plan a hospital and another three to four years to build it, which is a 10-year time frame. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Do you think there is a place in the future for these grand $1 billion, $2 billion hospitals? Or is that something that was thought about 10 years ago? I've found that there's a particular hospital in Australia where it's about, about one point plus billion dollars, but it doesn't have many beds and there's still a bed shortage in the state. So. Yeah, I think this is a challenge. It's the way we count beds and we need to change that because every state counts beds differently. When you realise that 70% of all elective surgery is day surgery and it's not done in a bed at all, it's done in a recliner in a space, we need to be talking about treatment spaces and not beds because now, the average length of stay in Australia is 3.6 days. 
Now, measuring up those issues where the other end of that scale is that patients are much older, they have much greater comorbidities. And although we have a 3.6 stay for elective, we certainly have a much higher stay for other patients, medical patients having physician services. So I do think that we're going to see the breakdown of what was happening in the 50s where patients went, went somewhere else for recovery. I think it will be driving the high level of technology because of the cost of the technology. But I think how we manage our day patients, more patients having day surgery and managing to a home environment afterwards. As an example, the Alfred Centre, day surgery has 23-hour beds. It has 72-hour beds, but it's all elective surgery. And they did that so they could free up the beds for their very high-level emergency department. So then elective surgery is no longer taking up operating room time that was otherwise allocated for emergencies, and those cases don't get cancelled. So that model's now 10 years old, but I think it could be taken up a great deal more. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So just before we um, run out of time, for those who are starting off their health um, design career or health construction career, do you have any advice for those entering the uh, industry, especially those more interested in planning or clinical health? I think get involved in peer groups, no matter whether you're an engineer or an architect or a health planner, be involved in the peer groups that affect the outcomes for where you want to work. The sooner you do it, the sooner you get exposed to a a great deal more thinking. Final question, what does the future look like for you? You've You've done so much, you've worked overseas, you've studied overseas, you've built countless hospitals in Australia. What does the future look like for you, slowing down or? No, I don't think so. I guess I've, over the years I've become ultra specialised, not by intention, but just by the way things have gone. And AS4187, which is the Australian standard for sterilisation, is being implemented across Australia-wide. So I'm working a great deal in that sterilisation and CSSD space. I'm also at the moment in the early functional brief stage of building a hospital in Vietnam, and I'm quite excited about that. Leslie, thank you so much for your time. We, we really do appreciate it. We'll finish up now, but I'm no doubt see you soon and I look forward to seeing you at the AHTC as well. Okay, David, thank you for your time and effort. That's all right. You have been listening to the Australian Health Design Council podcast series, Health Design on the Move. If you would like to learn more about the AHTC, please connect with us on our website or LinkedIn. Thank you for listening. Thank you.